In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, if you'll forgive the indulgence. Uh, anybody ever heard of Drew Holcomb? Musician? Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors? Yeah. So, uh, back in April, uh, Drew Holcomb tweeted this with a question. He was asking, um, so he's going to go on a fall tour, and where should he go? Well, far be it for me to let that sort of interest or inquiry go unanswered. So I said, Asheville, right? And, and you know what he did? He liked it. He liked my tweet. So now I'm important. Everything is fine now. <laughs> All was well with the world. Well, that's April, right? Well, fast forward to last fall. This fall, this fall, like last month. On my birthday, my wife surprised me with ticket to what? The Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors concert at the Orange Peel. There they were. On my, yes, it's great. On my birthday. And one of my favorite songs turns out to be one of his favorite songs. And the name of that song is Live Forever. And the song actually has a backstory to it. And if you read the interview, which you can look up in the resource doc that's in the sermon resource doc this week, he's very frank about what gave rise to it. It was not just he was having a you know, hard day and he wrote a song. He had, several years ago, some nephews and nieces who were about to move to Panama for, for whatever reason, and he was heartbroken by the fact that he was not going to be able to uh, you know, see them grow and mature into things, and so he wrote a song that was in his desire for them in the future because he couldn't be with them. He wanted them to hear something from him that would be something that they could carry with them all the days of their life. And I, I want you to hear just an excerpt from the song, just a couple minutes of it. It's not, you're not listening to it because I'm going to give you a quiz on it. I want you to feel it at the same time that you hear it, but to know that there's a backstory behind it that gives rise to what he's doing. So listen to it for a couple minutes. Laughter is the only thing that'll keep you sane. In this world is crying more and more every day. Don't let evil get you down. In this madness, spinning round and round.
you're nice, I'll let you listen to more of it later. The song is his desire for those nephews and nieces he would not see for a while. But if we're honest, at the same time that it's a desire for them, it's also a prayer. He's appealing to the Lord to do what he cannot do and what no one else can do for them. I want you to live forever. That's a prayer. It's not just a song, but it is that. And I have you listen to it this morning because it sets the tone and it fits perfectly with where we're headed in our service and the rest of this sermon. We've been listening to a letter that we think Paul wrote to a fledgling church in what is now modern-day Turkey, and we have reasoned that that letter is telling us the song and the dance of the gospel, that the, the melody that must move deeply within us, that it might move strenuously and creatively through us. And so far in the letter, we've heard a lot of doctrine about what is true of the Lord and what is true of Jesus and what is true of the gospel. And, and last week we heard how that doctrine was beginning to express itself through doxology, through praise. Well, this morning, Paul will take the doctrine that led to doxology and turn it into prayer. It will be his prayer for those churches. And at the same time that it was prayer for them, it would be prayer for us because as surely as Paul prays, you heard in Hebrews chapter 7, what is Jesus up to? He's not just sitting idly by, he's making intercession. He prays now for you as Paul prayed then for them and we want to consider what does it mean to live in light of forever? To live forever, that is to live in light of forever. And so we want to take his prayers and tease them out and consider them from three angles. The content of the prayers, the confidence with which he prays them, but also the context in which those prayers get hammered out. What's he praying for? That's the content. Why is he so bold to pray in that way? That's his confidence. And where does this all work out? In what forum? That's the context. That's what we're headed. We want to know, what is it like to live in light of forever? It has something to do with prayer, so let's consider that. We're in Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 15. I wonder if you could prepare yourself for it to, by standing and listening. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, start at verse 15. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things, 
to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may, you may sit. <clears throat> I first want to talk about the content of his prayers, but before I do, I want to have you consider just a couple preliminaries. Um, so far in this letter, you have heard Paul use one word two times, and it's the word predestined. And if you think about that word long enough, even though he doesn't elaborate on it too much, you can get kind of caught up short, because that use of that word is not merely that God kind of just saw how history was going to unfold, but that he had a hand in how history unfolded, that he had a hand in how salvation unfolds for anyone who inherits it, who receives it. And when you hear a word like that in the course of our ordinary thinking about time and history and quantum mechanics and all that stuff, you begin to wonder, wait, um, if he's kind of knows the end from the beginning, then does that mean that any of my choices have any meaning? Do they have any impact? Do they have any point or purpose? And, and if you start going down that road and you think about, do my choices have any meaning? Well, well then what does that imply about prayer? Like, again, we ask the question, if he knows and he acts before we ever had a chance to act, what's the point of our praying? And I, I acknowledge that struggle. I acknowledge that paradox. And I'm not here to resolve it except to explain the implications. The same one who spoke of predestination and who didn't flinch from saying it twice in the early part of the letter is the same one who is praying. Somehow they fit together. Somehow the outworking of his plan is worked out through the praying. Do I get that? Do I believe that all the time? Do I feel like I believe that all the time? Of course not. But I'm just trying to remove some of the, eh, and get stuck. What about the predestined thing? Don't get stuck. He's praying. Second preliminary is this. The fact that he's praying at all is to suggest that there is something about this life that is not yet awakened. For the last few weeks, we have, we have honed in on that doctrine that we think is so crucial to understanding what it means to be a Christian, and it's the doctrine of union, that by faith in Jesus, we are united to Christ, and we live in that circle of his favor and his future, and that's a given. That's a thing that does not change. And yet, for Paul to pray as he does, what does that suggest? That this life, united to Christ, is not like being transferred into a pool, into a pond that's got this border around it. It's kind of like being transferred into a river. What is the difference between a river and a pond? They both have water, but one is, if you will, alive. There is movement to it. There is direction. And where you start, you are never intended to stay. And that's why he prays. And that's why we want to consider the content of his prayer. What is it? What is he praying for? And even as we ask that question, my, my objective here is not simply to unpack for you what is he praying for, but to also answer the question, what would it look like for the prayer to be answered? What are the marks of those answered prayers? Let's, let's go through these. Let's consider it from that angle. When he says... I want you to know, 
I want that the Lord would give you spiritual wisdom and revelation that your hearts may be enlightened. Um, maybe this is kind of a silly way to unpack what he means by that. But you remember in, in uh, Back to the Future, right? Marty transported back to you know, the adolescent years of his parents who are just at that point uh, adolescents in high school. And you remember uh, it is his objective to in, in, you know, ensure that the space-time continuum is not interrupted by his errors, that he has to find a way to make sure that his parents meet and fall in love. And with every step, in the opposite direction in which Biff gets in the way, huh, Biff, when his parents start to move further and further apart, what happens? His, his very being starts to fade into unreality. And it's only after he works everything he can, playing the earth angel, earth angel, right? That's the song. Finally, his parents meet, their eyes lock, they fall in love, and then everything becomes more vivid, and his hands become full, and the picture he has of his siblings, they finally materialize in fullness because the idea, the hope, becomes real. Where that love is birthed, where that love is assured, something becomes more real. What is Paul praying for in the content? That some ideas would, for you, become more real. That they would not exist out here in the, well, it's in the Bible and we talk about it on Sundays, but somehow, somehow they become more tangible, they become more vivid. What's the first prayer that he issues? That you might know the hope to which you are called. Paul is, is not talking about an optimism. He's not talking about a general kind of cheerfulness. When he speaks about hope, he's talking about a rest and resolve in what is still to come in fullness. Things that have been promised that will come to fulfillment. And, and what, what falls under that category? I, I, can, I can rattle off three things real quickly. Righteousness, renewal, and resurrection. If you ever wonder, what has God really promised? What, what can I count on in this life when so much that I usually count on in this life can get pulled out from under me in a heartbeat? What can I be sure of according to his promise? Righteousness, renewal, and resurrection. In Isaiah chapter 6, here's a wonderful painting by Mark Chagall about Isaiah chapter 6. Remember that moment? Isaiah is a prophet of God, and he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips. And what happens? The cherubim and the seraphim come out of nowhere, and they grab the, golden to the, 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 uh, the tongs that are on fire, and they touch his lips. Ow! And it's atoned for and he becomes one who speaks for the Lord as a prophet, but one who realized and was awakened to his imperfection, his corruption, his need of cleansing and pardon and, and protection, and, and therein sues a whole life before the Lord, before the face of God. That, friends, is not just a story. That is the origin story for every believer. You become awakened to what is deepest in you and you begin to grieve that which you see in yourself because you realize that you live before one who is holy and who is good and who is pure and he touches you and he pardons and he calls you into a walk in newness of life. That's, that's a picture of righteousness. That which he starts, he doesn't mean for you to continue and stay in that condition. He wants you to move on to new understanding, new awareness. And so what would it mean like to, to, to grow in that prayer? What would it mean to see that prayer answered? It's this. Over and over and over again, you become awakened to that imperfection, that thing that you know is wrong, that you know is, is leading you unto a, a little death before you die, where you are killed by a 10,000 cuts and the things that you do, and you are aggrieved by it. 
And you wonder, why do I keep doing the thing I don't want to do? Why do I not do the things that I want to do, like Paul says in Romans 7? And as you grieve it, you, you desire to repent of it, and, and you do that as often as necessary. That's, that's the picture of how righteousness, the hope to which you are called, begins to unfold until it will be fully then, when you will be fully conformed to the image of the beloved Son. What about renewal? The righteousness of which I speak is that which is held personally by us all, but that righteousness that God intends for each individual is meant to spread and extend to the entirety of creation. Jesus makes it clear, I am the one in whom all things are made new. That is where life and history is headed, though right now it feels like it's just carnage. So that which he means to do in us, which he means to bring to completion, he also means to do through us in the world around us. And you know that that scene there at the very beginning of our service in the invention of lying, what what do you see? Two people that are believing in some sort of man in the sky who watches over them and welcomes them when they die, and their deduction is, well... I'll just kind of live however I want and I'll uh, drink and watch television and that'll be great. That's what God has for me. The man in the sky, no! (laughs) That's how a lot of people see what religious faith does. But let me just recall from your memory bank something that C.S. Lewis wrote a long time ago. He said this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. What does the answer to prayer of the hope to which you are called look like? It looks like renewal working in and through you. In whatever your little sphere of influence is, whether it is within your family or within your corporation, whether it is within your neighborhood or on the board of directors, whatever it might be, renewal works itself out that way. That's the hope to which you're called. And as righteousness and renewal have everything to do with how we think about and see life when it comes to resurrection, well, what does that help us see? It helps us see our death differently. And that has to play. Look, Paul's really honest in 1 Corinthians 15. If, if, if in this life only we have this hope, you should pity us. If the resurrection is just a metaphor, maybe it'll carry you on for a while, but let's just be honest with ourselves. We're lying to ourselves if we think that. But if it's true, and I believe it is, And what are the implications for how we think about our death? Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China at a previous century, and he was very frank about what it meant for him, and he said it this way, Love gave the blow which for a while makes the desert more dreary, but heaven more homelike. There is a homecoming awaiting me which no parting shall break into, nor tears mar. Yes, it has an effect. Yes, that's the hope to which you're called, and that's how it begins to materialize in the present. What's the second thing he prays for? Not just the hope to which you are called, but he also says the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, there's that word inheritance, and you even heard it there in the preparation to our worship in Psalm 16. And last week, I was only honest with you. When you read verse 18 here, you go, huh, what is... is our, Is God our inheritance, something that we receive from him, or are we his inheritance? When you look at the context here in this part of the passage, the needle's kind of moving more in the direction of the latter. 
that there is something yet to come in which we, we are already belong to him, but there's a sense in which that belongingness to him, the sense of our belovedness before him, reaches something fuller, something greater, a full reality, such that there is no one and nothing that can mess with who you are to him. No one can come against it. No one can deny you from it. No one can convince you otherwise. How does that work out in the present? I'll tell you how the answer to that prayer would look like now. Uh, during our series on the Ten Commandments, I, I referenced the very first sentence of the most recent book by Andy Crouch. And he says this, Recognition is the first human quest. Some might argue survival is. Please feed me! But even in the quest to be fed is the quest to be recognized for their need, their existence, their identity. Recognition is the first human quest. And we pursue that quest from the very beginning without ever being told we have to. And we pick up on the world that we're in. We read the room and we discover recognition is where it's at. And we come up with all sorts of strategies on how we might be noticed, affirmed, and recognized. And so we learn stuff, we do stuff, we try stuff. Some stuff, we nail it. Just, we stick the landing. And other stuff we do, we fail at it. It's like, I am done. There is no way. We either nail it or fail it. And here's our default position. Here's where we usually go. And kids, you know this feeling. When you nail something, what do you feel? Awesome! I feel awesome. I nailed it. And when you fail, you feel like you're nothing. Like if you're a New York Yankees fan right now, you feel like you're nothing, right? And that would be true. Uh, no, it's not true. It's not true. I'm just playing with you. Look, kids, you try stuff, you learn stuff, you do stuff, and you nail it, and, you're, and you feel like, I am important. I am on top of the world. And when I, I mess up, like I'm nothing and I'm just here to, to warn you. I know why you do that. I do that too. And adults are really good at it also. But look, if you forever make your sense of recognition and importance, what you've done, what you've won, what accolades hang on the wall, do you know what life like that is? It is like walking around on one leg. It takes very little for you to be Knocked to the ground. And I'm speaking to adults as much as I'm speaking to you kids. There's all sorts of good stuff that you do, and you, and you should rightly celebrate it and enjoy it, but I'm just warning you, if you make that thing, this deepest sense of, I'm important. Look, Drew, Drew Holcomb liked my tweet. If you do that, you have set yourself up for a life in which you are walking on one leg, and you will be thrown to the ground. The, 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 kind, the way this prayer starts to get answered in you when it's talking about the glorious inheritance of riches is that you recognize that your recognition is first and foremost that you belong to him because of Jesus. And right now, you're as a kid, that's kind of like, that's over here. That's like in Etowah, and I'm here. How does that ever get here? It's with help. It's with reminder. It's with the help of the Spirit. That that which is most true of you, that you belong to him because of Christ, that moves more deeply in. That's how that prayer gets answered. That's what it looks like to get answered. Third thing he prays for, not just the hope to which you were called, not just 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, but also the immeasurable greatness of his power. Power. So to know that this hope is real, that that which is an idea is going to become more real for me, okay, I, power for that, and, and now this idea that I really belong to him and that my dignity and my importance and my worth, they're all about what he has done for me, less so but what I might do for anybody else. What, what is that power? Is, is he talking about sort of a mental focus that we give? You know, like I'm learning calculus. I have to focus my full attention there. Is that it? Or is that this, this word that everybody gets thrown around these days, grit? Do you have grit? Tell me about your grit. Do your kids have grit? Is that the power, the power from within? Those things are fine. That's not what he's talking about. This power is from outside of you. And last week he alluded to it. He said that you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The one who helps you see how you are seen by God because of Christ. Sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. And in a few weeks, when Andrew gets to Ephesians chapter 3, you're going to hear an elaboration on the way in which the Holy Spirit comes to help you believe more deeply in the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of the love of God in Christ. That's the power. That's where it comes from. Do I get that? Of course not. But that's where it is. What that means for you and for me is this. The, the way that prayer gets hammered out, the way that prayer begins to take shape in you and take root in you is that you come to believe, you come to find your rest and your resolve in a trust that you are accompanied by God in this life. And that there is an assistance that is for you that is unrelenting. You are not simply tasked with responsibilities. You are not simply given a set of ideas and called to run with that. You are accompanied. You are assisted because you are indwelled. And Paul is asking that that would become truer for you, that you might appeal to heaven, that you might appeal to the Spirit so that some of these ideas become real. Now that's his prayer. That's the content of his prayer, the asking and the appealing that they might live in life in light of forever, just like Drew sings. Now, ask all you want. The question is this, why, why are requests like that that seem so high and so important and so deep and so foundational, like why is that not just sort of a spitting in the wind and whistling in the dark? Because I can be optimistic all you want, and my optimism fades very quickly. Why does Paul have such confidence to pray as he does? Is it because he's a glass-half-full kind of guy? The answer is no. If everything depended on whether you're a glass-half-full or a glass-half-empty kind of person, God help you, literally. Where does the confidence come in order for him to pray as he does for things that seem so impossible. You heard it in verse 20 and 21. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. What is any hint or indication or proof that God has a power that can act in your present? It is how God has already demonstrated his power in the past through resurrection. Through raising Jesus from the dead, 
And then whatever he means by seating him at the right hand of God in power. For, for them to say that Jesus sat down was not for him to take his load off. It was for him to suggest to everyone, my work is done. It's done. I finished it. And now I share in the same authority with the Father. That's what it means to sit there. Now that's power. Now, um, I'm a geek, so I was really intrigued by the fact, um, did you see this last week? The, the, um, it's called the DART, the Double Asteroid Redirection Test. Isn't NASA clever with their acronyms? It's called the DART, and it was their um, effort to recreate that scene from Armageddon, which I walked out of. It was horrible. Um, they took a satellite, and they aimed it at um, an asteroid, and they impacted on the surface of that asteroid in order to do what? To alter its trajectory. And it is amazing footage. Amazing footage. Smash. Boom. Right. And they, they were trying to just knock it off by like one degree of its trajectory because that would mean, you know, in space terms, that's millions of miles. Well, it hit, right? And that's power. And now they're looking up at the sky and you can see it's like got two ejecta coming out of where it hit. It's wonderful news. That's power. It's so much power. They've altered the trajectory of an asteroid with this itty-bitty thing that they launched from space. That's power. But friends, let's just put it in perspective. That is still not the same as bringing somebody back from the dead. There's power and then there's power. And for the Lord to raise Jesus from the dead is to suggest that there is something here. Now, look, um, if you're here and you wandered in and... You don't know if I get this Jesus thing, but I'll at least listen. Uh, I know what you're thinking. Well, of course he's going to say that. He's the pastor, right? Uh, the famous line from Upton Sinclair, um, a man has a hard time uh, understanding something that his paycheck keeps him from not understanding, right? Ha, ha, ha. If he didn't rise, what happened? They just conceal his burial and then was able to masterfully weave a tale? That's how it worked? Or... That was all just an analogy for, you know, sort of this, the, the origin story of humanity. And that's all we have to, we have to live in the hope of kind of rebirthing ourselves, of, of coming back to new life in sort of this metaphorical way. Is that what happened? Or did he disappear like Bilbo on his 111st birthday? What happened? You have to have a hypothesis if you don't subscribe to the idea that he was actually risen. Island, and now everybody's trying to get off, but uh, the question is, uh, what else might we do in the midst of our struggle? And there's this brief scene that goes like this. What do you boys got going up here? Guess what, King? Well, listen, uh, I got a whole team of folks uh, throwing together a big sign down along the beach. Hopefully, you'll get us spotted by a plane or a satellite. We could sure use all the bodies we could get to help put it together. Sorry, I'm busy. Charlie? I regret burning. I've only got two hands, you know. Good luck, though. What, could I at least grab some of these logs? We could sure use them. We're using them. For what, exactly? A church. A church? Yes. Everybody on this island is building something. I'm trying to get us saved. People are saved in different ways, man. Oh. <laughs> Mic drop, right? It's a, it's a wonderful kind of picture there of kind of uh, everybody's trying to save themselves off this marooned island. That's a metaphor. And then 
Echo was saying, what if there's a way of salvation that comes through the creation of a people who gather in the name of the Lord? That's what we call the church. Here in verses 22 and 23, Paul adds what I would argue is the content, or the, rather the context in which the content of these prayers get hammered out. He says there in the last two verses, and he put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. This is the first of at least 18 references in the whole book of Ephesians in which Paul starts addressing this thing he refers to as the church or as the body or of his people. It's what it is. And what we learn from it are two things here in this introduction. The nature of the church has two aspects to it. One, Jesus is the head of it. All are in submission to him if they belong to it. And those who are his in the church, they are members of his body. That he's not simply sort of some figurehead, some, some leader, some, some name that we give our allegiance to. He is part of it. And that's why in Acts chapter 9, when the Apostle Paul is out to persecute the church, and he has the vision of Jesus, and what does Jesus say to him with the shining light and Paul going, Saul going blind, and Jesus says, why, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not, why are you persecuting them? Why are you persecuting me, the church? He is that. Such that Jesus makes his fullness present everywhere where his people reign and live and find their being and find their strength. And what does that look like? At risk of trivializing what the church is, life is a Pixar film. And here's a couple scenes that reference, I think, in part, what is the church to anyone who might belong to it? We're a lot stronger than you say we are. And you know it, don't you? <laughs> well, princess. Um, Hopper, um, I, I hate to interrupt, but... Um... You ants, stay back! This was such a bad idea. You see, Hopper, nature has a certain order. The ants pick the food, the ants keep the food, and the grasshoppers leave. Help me help everybody to swim. swim. 
together. You understand what I'm saying to you? Swim down. Wired Magazine noticed it. We might notice it. That there is something to this idea that the kinds of ways in which we are situated among this people, it is meant to be strength for us that we do not possess individually. That there is help and hope that comes by being part of the same story and finding strength and hope and awareness and repentance and rebuke when we need it. We talk a lot around here about formative friendships that we find in a variety of ways and places and situations and groups in this community. But friends, this is the context in which those prayers, they, they get hammered out among us. And so to absent yourself or to keep yourself on the periphery of that is in some ways to tie your own hands, to expose you to things that the community is meant to strengthen you with. What's the take-home of all this? Where, where does this lead? I'll, 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 I'll sum it up very quickly. I think the content of these prayers ought to be the content of ours and with the same confidence. That you and I begin to ask the Lord to help us grow in that righteousness to which we are called, that we might be a part of the renewal work in this world and with the hope of resurrection. And that we would take the church on its own terms. I am aware that any number of people in this room have a whole list of grievances about being part of a church before and finding some of the worst experiences of their life. And I hear that. And I understand that. And I sympathize with that. And that's why it's a risk, as all love is. But if you don't find it here, you will try to find it elsewhere. Strength. Reminder, rebuke, repentance, communion. We're meant to know him as a body, and we're meant to know each other who will belong to him by faith. But even as we pray with that confidence, and even as we take the church seriously for what it is on its own terms, this is the last thing you need to know. That when you come to this table, you need to believe that the Lord Jesus is singing over you in love singing over you in love a song, that you would live forever, that you would live in light of forever, and that this table is meant not merely to picture that belief, but to convey to you strength and power to walk in its truth. This is what he's called us to. This is the song he sings over us, that it might work deeply within us. Let's pray. Father, would you pray for us? Would you pray for us as Paul did? Would your son pray for us as Paul did? Would your spirit 
pray for us with groans too deep for words. You said you will. We ask that you might when words fail us with the strength to believe even to pray uh, evaporates like the dew of the morning. We give you thanks that you are our advocate and we pray now that you would help us to live in light of forever this day. In Jesus' name, amen.